Welcome to In the Envelope, a podcast from Backstage, the number one resource for actors and talent seekers. I am your host, Jack Smart, awards editor at Backstage, and I'm here to guide you through every aspect of the entertainment industry with the help of some of your favorite stars. These intimate, inspirational conversations with today's most award-worthy film, television, and theater artists provide you, dear listener, advice on how to live the creative life, personal stories of success and failure alike, and maybe, just maybe, a tantalizing glimpse in the envelope. The more variety and the more options you can bring your collaborators, the, the, the more an asset you are to have on set or in the recording booth. It's very frustrating when an actor comes in and they have decided this is how this line should be set. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of In the Envelope. Uh, welcome back to another special Tuesday episode. This episode is extra special indeed, uh, not just because of the guest we just heard, who, by the way, is Raphael Bob Waxberg, who is the creator of Netflix's BoJack Horseman, among other things. But I have also asked uh, to join me today, Jamie Muffet. Jamie, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm not sure I can match your level of enthusiasm, but I'll try. <laughs> okay. I'm try. That's totally fair. How have you been holding up? How how's things been going? I'm yeah, good. Yeah, fine. <laughs> Other than keeping up with in the envelope episodes at maybe a higher rate than you're used to, uh, how are you in general? Pretty good. Um, voiceover work has been steady mm-hmm. actually maybe even busier than usual in some some areas um right. but uh yeah so in terms of work wise things are pretty good i can't complain um obviously the world is in a very strange place right now so that's yes. that has to be navigated of course but uh but yeah how about you yes in general it's there's still lots of ups and downs but i think in general it's uh it has been nice to have this podcast up and going regularly and kind of just to pick the brains of these very fascinating, very accomplished artists yeah. and ask how they're dealing with these uncertain times, particularly, you know, when it comes to their creative process, because for some, their creative process is unaffected. I think for, for more often, it's, it's their creative process has had to be adapted. I think that's kind of true for, for all of us to an extent. Yeah, I think it doesn't matter what industry you're in to some extent. I mean, you, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're all trying to sort of figure out what, how we're going to deal with all this stuff and... Um, how we maintain our sanity and completely. I mean, usually when you're able to go to set, you're able to leave your home, you can escape the day to day of whatever's going on in your life. But we we're sort of sat here having to face everything every day. Just you and a microphone, just me and a microphone. Right. Yeah. In very separate places. Um, you mentioned voiceover, uh, which is a, the, the theme of today's episode, I would say. Yeah. (laughs) Is it not? It is. It is. Um, and I think we have a couple of episodes coming up where that is also a theme and it's sort of a, an ongoing yes. theme for us right now, totally. primarily because that is the area of the entertainment industry that is still up and running um, Completely. And still doing well. Completely. It's, this podcast is expanding into kind of, we're obviously still focusing on acting and talking to actors and creators, but we're also doing these deep dive episodes like today's 
into different parts of the of the industry and we've we've had to kind of tweak and adjust that strategy as this crisis has kind of kept kind of affected the industry and as you said affected voiceover in in many ways and so it's helpful to talk to somebody like Raphael Bob Waxberg who's a bit of a voiceover expert and animation uh I'm going to say animation pioneer yeah uh, and the creator of one of my favorite TV shows of all time BoJack Horseman yeah and I don't want to quiz you but you you just listened to the interview what what should listeners uh listen out for there were a few things that really struck a chord with me and uh one of them was how to remain or the importance of remaining flexible as a voice talent with line Uh delivery with approach to your character and uh you know, not necessarily having an ironclad, you know, linear mm. approach to everything. Sometimes you can go into a booth with one expectation and end up voicing something completely different. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. And uh, offering totally. the editor a lot of options afterwards as well with a variation of yeah. lines, I thought that was that was pretty good and really right? practical. You know, that's what happens. Absolutely. Just like on camera acting. Yeah. In fact, I would say this interview is great for anyone who is not involved in voiceover at all and is just a regular actor, also a regular writer, because there's plenty of, of thoughts on screenwriting as he's a, as a major writer and author. So yeah, I would say if you're an actor who is maybe intrigued by voiceover, is maybe kind of drawn to it right now, given the state of the industry, our future voiceover deep dives like this one are going to be your guide to getting that started. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's a huge amount to learn from these. Um, uh, One thing I do want to throw in there real quick before we wrap this up is that as voice actors, sometimes we have a tendency to blame the script if something isn't going right. (laughs) And it was nice (laughs) to have a writer's perspective on that because that is not necessarily how, uh, you know, what we should be doing. We should be working Mm. with the tools that we are are given. So I I thought that was a particularly good takeaway. Ain't that the truth? Yeah. Well, great. So let's get to it. This is a supersized interview. So this today's is a supersized episode. And um, that's because we couldn't cut anything. It's all really, really great. So yeah, it is. Uh, buckle up. And um, Jamie, thanks for joining us. We will talk again very soon. My pleasure. Let's take a quick break and then get to this interview with Raphael Bob Waxberg. Hello, hello. This is Jamie, the producer of the podcast. And I just want to take some time to tell you about the sister podcast to In the Envelope, which is VO School. This is a podcast that I produce and host, and it is devoted entirely to voiceover. So if you're looking to get into the voiceover industry, you should check it out. That's VO School, found on iTunes, Stitcher, all the usual places. And it's hosted by me. Each episode covers a different subject, and we go through the business, the craft, the marketing, the blood, sweat and tears that is creating a voiceover career. So check us out, the VO School podcast, available now. Raphael Bob Waxberg is a showrunner, comedian, author, voice actor, and pioneer of animated series. He teamed up with illustrator and production designer Lisa Hanawalt to create and produce Netflix's BoJack Horseman, a tragicomic satire about a Hollywood has-been horse. Raphael is also the creator of the Amazon animated series Undone and producer of Netflix's Tuca and Birdie. Here's our in-depth interview with Raphael Bob Waxberg.
Okay, great. Hi, Raphael. Hi, how are you? What's what's new? What's the gossip? <laughs> so wait, where are you? You sound good. Are you? Do you have like a full-blown studio or? No, I definitely no. don't. I'm glad to hear I sound good. I'm just I'm just <laughs> on my laptop in my in the guest room of my home. Okay. <laughs> which has turned into my office. Have you done like press since this all started? Um, a little, not not a lot. Uh-huh. Um, but no podcasts. Before, no podcasts. Today? No, this okay. is this is my first uh, home studio podcast. I guess you could say. That's yeah. We I've got a very very makeshift home studio going here, mm-hmm. which is best. You know, it's the best we can do. We're doing the best we can. Yes. This is in the In the Envelope podcast with Backstage. I know you just spoke to Backstage recently, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we are all about the craft and career advice for for artists. And sure, it's a weird thing to start an interview this way because it's. But that's the sign of the times. Um, how? What is your life like? How has your life changed? What's been going on in the last month? <laughs> how has my life? What's going on in the last month? <laughs> Is everything just totally um, um, normal? Nothing's changed. <laughs> no, no, I can't think of. A th- I know I'm gonna. I'm kicking myself. You know, later I'm gonna think of something that has changed. But top of mind, everything has been totally normal. Um, no, things are things are are different. Um, you know, I'm I'm really not leaving my house uh, mm-hmm. except to buy groceries um, or or walk my dog. Um, mm-hmm. I've been. Uh, I was going to say working from home, although I've really barely been working. This has not oh, been the okay. most productive quarantine for me. I don't know if other people are, are having more productive <laughs> quarantines. Oh, um, it's run it's run the gamut. It seems some people are completely catatonic not working, and some people are like productivity machines right now. Yeah, I, I would say I am... Um, not getting a lot done and i but i don't feel too bad about it i've been allowing myself uh to to slow down to to i'm I'm thinking of this as a as a a a regenerating time as far as my ideas Mm -hmm. and productivity goes that that i that maybe i'll come out of this with 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 uh an eagerness (laughs) to get back to work um but you know i've been working very hard, uh, for the last seven, eight years. Um, and I, I think it's, it's very natural to have periods of productivity and periods of non-productivity. And so I'm, I'm yes. using this forced time off, uh, and, and, and forgiving myself for not being as productive as, as maybe, uh, others are. Well, that's actually great advice. Yeah. For, for those listening who are maybe feeling the pressure of having to create content right now, that pressure, uh, is not it, that pressure is optional maybe for some i mean i'm i'm very fortunate in that i i, I do not have immediate uh financial concerns mm-hmm. or or reasons where i feel like i i need to work uh, other than my own uh let's say guilt or you know right. sense of uh self-identity as a writer um mm. but you know I, I know many others are not as fortunate uh, so I, sure. I don't want to be glib and say, just relax, take it easy. <laughs> what's, what's the problem? Very true. Totally. Um, totally. And of course I'm, I'm, you know, very lucky that my line of work is one that I can work from home if I, if I chose to, and if I could, you know, muster the enthusiasm mm-hmm. for it, I, I could spend the day writing. 
Um, whereas I know yeah. many other people are not so fortunate. Sure. Well, and the, the fascinating thing about Hollywood right now is, I mean, I think I was reading the other day, like the writing part of the pro of the production process, the earliest parts of that process is still well underway. If anything, it might, there might be more people participating in that right now. It's just that the production part can't happen. So if, and when we're all allowed to, sorry, when we are all allowed to go back to our normal lives and Hollywood kind of kicks up again there's is there do you think there's just going to be this floodgate of ideas that are ready to be filmed and ready to go yeah yeah they don't need me to write stuff that's they don't need you writing things <laughs> i i hope so i mean i i i mean I, I don't i don't think there's going to be a moment where like the gates open though i do think it's going to be yeah. a, a slow gradual rebuilding of of some things that are possible and other things that are take mm. longer to be possible um, so I, I, it's not going to be like flipping a switch, but I, no, I do yeah. think if if people have ideas and they're excited to be writing, I don't think that is a fruitless pursuit at the moment. I think it is mm. uh, worth assuming that, yes, if you write something one day, someone will want to make it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, so take me back to the very beginning. Um, I'd love to hear about the germ that started all of the, the initial seeds of this career was... Uh, writing always the goal no <laughs> i mean well how how far <laughs> to the beginning are we going like what do you what do you mean by beginning when you say were you always ever, the goal well, yeah were you ever like bit by the the performing arts bug or the hollywood bug yeah i mean i i was a i i did um theater in 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 middle school and in high school mm -hmm. um and I, I i i was always a bit of a class clown and i i liked to perform um I feel like I, I never had a good sense of, of what my future was going to be. Although I think if you ask people who knew me, mm. I think most of them might tell you that, that this was always in the cards for me to, to some extent. Um, I think other people mm. saw it, saw more direction in me than I saw for myself. I mean, I, I remember feeling very lost and, and confused as to what I was supposed to be doing at, at various stages in my young adult life. Sure. Um, but I, I do feel like I, I landed in the right place. I was a, a playwriting major in college. Okay. Um, I remember when I was in high school, actually, my, my idol was David Letterman. I wanted to be a late night talk show host when I grew up. Um, okay. Although I am so ill-equipped for that line of work. Now I, I don't know what I was thinking because I, I, I don't enjoy making small talk with people. Uh, <laughs> that's basically all a talk show host is. Uh, so I'm, I, 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 I'm not sure. I think I, I enjoyed the bits. I, I, I liked oh, okay. that, that when I was a kid, you know, the, the talk show host that I was fans of fan of like, like David Letterman, like Conan O'Brien, like, they didn't take it too seriously. There was there's kind of a, mm. a a damn the man energy behind them, and I, I liked that uh, rebellious spirit. I think more than I I liked the the particular job that they were doing. But gotcha. Um, but then then I yeah I majored in 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 theater in college, um, and I was also in a, a, a sketch comedy group, um, mm -hmm. and I I remember at that point feeling very strongly. Um, that theater should be uh, serious and emotional um, and sketch okay. comedy should be unambiguously funny and punchline oriented. Um, and I, I didn't want any of 
my sketch comedy stuff in my plays, and I didn't want any of my serious theatrical stuff in my comedy. Oh. Uh, and then later, uh, I guess when I when I began my TV writing career, mm-hmm. uh, I started to play with the idea of maybe combining those two impulses, uh, and and that's I guess where BoJack Horseman comes in. Interesting. That's so interesting. You compartmentalized the two. Was that just because you? Your, that th- those were your perceptions of theater and of, of I think sketch? so I think I was I was kind of snobby too as I remember you know <laughs> seeing plays or reading plays and feeling like this is not a play this is sketch comedy you know as, as both a playwright and a sketch comedian this offends me <laughs> because it's it's not quite as funny as sketch comedy gotcha. but it, it, it's not as hard-hitting as theater and they're calling it theater and i i don't think uh that is fair to either discipline um mm. now i i don't think i would care as much <laughs> but but yes right. in college and and in the few years after college um, I, I definitely felt like that distinction was important. Right. It's not like at the time you were thinking, well, these are eventually going to coincide and create something for television. Yeah. And I, I think also when you are young, it's, it's helpful to kind of create definitions for yourself. I, I think it, it's, I, I think that is a, a part of the, uh, maturing process or, or, yeah you know, the, the, um, development process as a, as a brain in flux is to kind of define <laughs> things and, and create distinctions or borders around things. Even if those oh, sure. uh, borders end up shifting, I think it is maybe helpful for for a young writer. Sort of like learning the rules and then learning enough about the rules to be able to break them. I think so. I guess I'm thinking of like, you know, when you're a baby and, or, you know, mm. when you're first learning language and you see uh, an animal and you say cow, you know, and your parents say, no, that's not a cow, that's a sheep. But for you, you're just kind of learning what a cow is. And a cow is a, a four-legged animal <laughs> with, with fur, uh, you know, and then, or, you know, doggy maybe. And then as you continue mm-hmm. to evolve, you learn to discover the distinctions between animals. Um, and I, I think sometimes, yeah, you create new distinctions, but also things can blur in, in some ways. <laughs> or, you know, that that thing can't be uh, a table because it doesn't have four legs. Oh, well, well, some tables only have one leg. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this this is a thing we we, we figure out as we develop. Mm-hmm. That's just a natural part of human development, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Excellent. And so, OK, Letterman, Conan, the playwriting, the sketch, what, what were the other kind of influences, especially maybe in that formative college era? Um, that's, I mean, that's a lot of things. <laughs> I mean, it I, certainly I, is. I, I was certainly, I mean, definitely a student of sketch comedy. Um, you know, and I, I would, I would watch a lot of it, um, improv too. And, um, I was also a, a student of theater and I, I, I loved reading old plays and, and going to see plays. Um, I was, I was writing a lot. Um, I had a, a, a blog at the time. Um, that I think was really helpful for me as far as like creating a discipline around writing that I used to, I used to write in my blog every day, even if I didn't feel like it. Um, and, and that kind of, um, I think helped me develop, uh, like what are, what are, what are ways to keep this fresh and interesting for me? Are there, mm-hmm. are there different formats to blog entries that I could play around with when, when I get yeah. bored or when my audience gets bored? You know, I think it was really instructive to kind of see 
which blog entries uh, people seemed to like and comment and, mm-hmm. and, and on and which ones kind of fell flat. Um, I think and that kind of goes along with, with my sketch experience too. I think performing for a live audience mm-hmm. really honed my sense of humor, my sensibility. Um, and I think that, that, that was really helpful. So was your writing always, or was it always trying to be kind of that, the outward facing? It was not a private blog. It, the point of it was to share things publicly, right? Yeah, but there, I think there is a, a, a sort of anonymity in, in, in writing mm. for the public as well. And then I remember I would write stuff in my, in my live journal that I would never tell my friends, you know, that I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't tell people personally, even though I knew that my friends were reading the live journal. Like it, it, it was easier mm. to, there, it created a, a, a bit of distance, even if that distance was fictional. You know, and I, I certainly had one or two Harriet the Spy moments where, where the wrong person discovered what I was writing in my live <laughs> journal. Uh, and I had to uh, apologize or just avoid that person for the rest of my life. Um, but I, 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 I do think having that, the distance of the computer screen helped me mm. take bigger risks than I would have if, if I thought right. that I was writing directly, you know, writing a letter to a person specifically. It, it was helpful to kind of imagine that the audience on the internet was just the masses, um, mm-hmm. which uh, I think, like I said, yeah, allowed me to take bigger risks and allowed me to be more intimate and personal than I, I think I would have been otherwise. Mm-hmm. And then also discovering that that intimate personal stuff really connected with people that, that, you know, I would write stuff thinking right. like, oh, I, you know, I'm the only person who feels this way. This is such a weird thing to admit. And then mm-hmm. other people would say, oh, my God, I, I feel that way. Um, I didn't gotcha. I didn't know other people did. So interesting. Yeah. And and the was the regularity a part of it, too? I almost want to ask, like, what is your approach to disciplining yourself when you say you wanted to write every day, was that an organic desire or something that you maybe sometimes had to force yourself to do? Yeah, well, it actually was my friend Ben uh, had a, a blog in college also, and he started this thing where he said, I'm going to write every day. And I mm-hmm. challenge all my friends to write every day, too, uh, you know, for the rest of the year. And then whoever does it, whoever can last till the end of the year gets a prize. And so it started as this very mm. external challenge because I, I wanted that prize or I, I wanted the, I don't even know I wanted the prize. I wanted the bragging rights. Um, yes. and, and, but then looking back, I, I think that discipline really made me a better writer. And, and I, I've, I've said this before that I think if, if you, uh, went back and, and, and read that live journal, although I wouldn't, uh, recommend anyone do that, I think you can kind of see my development happen in real time and see me become the writer that I still am, that, that I, I kind of developed the tools and I figured out what my voice was, even if it was, you know, an, an early rudimentary version mm-hmm. of that voice. And it, the, is it just true that you have to, the pub, again, with the public thing, you have to put it out there, even if it's vulnerable, even if, even if it's scary, because that's the, because the feedback is helpful, right? I think so. I mean, you don't have to always put it out there. I mean, you can just write, you know, if, if I think, I think the, the, the public aspect of it made it easier for me to, um, motivate, you know, I think if it was, if I was just writing in a diary by on my own or a journal on my own, I, I don't think I would have the discipline to write every day, but I think knowing that people were waiting for my entries or that people would notice if I didn't for a day, I think that's mm. what made me do it. 
mm-hmm. at that at that time at least. Um, I think since then I've, I've become a little bit better at self-disciplining, but not not super good at it as as we discussed at the beginning of this conversation. Well, right, a pandemic will come and change that, right? Like it might, although for some it isn't. I mean, I think everyone's reacting totally. differently. Totally. Right. Yeah, discipline is not something you learn and then it's automatic forever. Like you kind of kind of relearn it. Yeah. But I think it's helpful. And so even even if it is like, you know, making a game for yourself or or mm-hmm. giving yourself a challenge, I think the routine of it is some can be more helpful than the than the end goal of it, right? And if if your goal yes. is like, okay, by the end of the, this week, I'm going to write an amazing thing. Okay, Monday, I didn't write anything amazing. Tuesday, I didn't write anything amazing. And then Friday comes around like, oh, I didn't do it. But if your goal is like, I'm going to write for an hour every day, that is something you can do if you're not res- as results-oriented. Um, gotcha. I heard a story once, and I don't remember where this came from. I think maybe, I think I heard this from Dan Harmon, probably said this in an interview or, 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 or something. He told the story about like a, a, a pottery class um, and this, I, this probably isn't even true. It's just a story people tell, but I, I find it very helpful. There's a pottery class. Um, and on the first day, the teacher divided the class in half and said, okay, the half on the left, you guys have the whole semester to make the perfect uh, vase. Um, and you could, you could spend as much time you like on it. You can make as many versions of you as you like. Um, but you have, you have to make the best vase you can by the end of the semester. And then to the other half, the right half, okay, you guys have to make a vase every day. Um, mm-hmm. that's, it can be as bad as you want, but you have to do it every day. Um, and then at the end of the semester, there was, they put all the best vases up, and there was like a, a blind um, you know, vote on what the best vases were. And all the best vases came from the half that made them every day. Mm-hmm. Um, that it was, it was the people who got the routine down and, and you know, um, got better at it. You know, it's like if, yeah. if you learn, if you're trying to learn guitar, um, an important part of that process is for your fingers to get calloused and thick. So the strings don't hurt your fingers anymore. And you can mm-hmm. only do that by doing it over and over and over again. Right. Um, and, and I think writing is the same way that like part of being a writer is just getting it in your bones, getting it, getting the muscle memory down, um, just, just doing it. Uh, and I think we're we're so often as writers afraid of writing something that is less than perfect, yes. and I think that fear paralyzes us. And I, I'm a I'm a big fan of writing less than perfect things. I think that's so important, and allowing yourself to do that, and then you know editing and refining those things and revising those things to get as perfect as as close to perfect as you can make them. Totally. Um, but I think you have to you have to not be afraid. Yes. Of, of creating bad work because there is no such thing as creating perfect work from the get-go. Right. There's no, it's, I mean, there's no perfect work. I mean, especially in a, in a field as subjective as writing for television. Uh, right. I mean, you're never going to please any, everybody anyway. You know, it's not like you're going to write a thing and a scientist is going to, to measure it and uh, decide, yes, it is 100% pure and correct. Uh, and then you get, you know, a little prize. Uh, like, that's, it's impossible. So all, right. all you're doing is just doing the best you can to um, articulate uh, the, the mess of uh, em- emotions and fears and hopes 
and uh, you know the, the the tangle of corners that exists within your soul. Mm. So you know, just do the best you can. Totally, that's beautiful. Yes, <laughs> well, totally. I try. Because <laughs> I do think you know maybe societally or or just the way that we think about art, we are very results oriented or. I don't know. I keep thinking about maybe it's because we're in this golden age of TV. Speaking specifically about TV, there's so much great TV out there that it's almost overwhelming for someone who's like, I would like to maybe write for TV. Usually the appetite of that person is to watch all of the the best TV. And when you do yeah. that, it's do you think it sort of becomes overwhelming? Like, I would like to get into TV. How on earth do I become as good as that person or as that show and that show and that show? I do think it's yeah, I mean, so I think good. Well, I think I think it's it's analogous to, you know, the Instagram effect of like looking at people uh, with gorgeous bodies on, you know, on beautiful vacations, eating perfect meals and going, I don't live like that. (laughs) Why? You know, it's 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 hard not to compare. Um, But of course, uh, like an Instagram photo, every TV show is the culmination and the accumulation of uh years of of uh collaboration and work mm-hmm. and you know and is is perfectly uh not perfectly but is is tirelessly designed mm-hmm. and and created to present uh the best face um right but that you know it all started from someone looking at a a blank page on a laptop going <laughs> how do i write good you know nobody knows like i I, and i um you know i i've written six seasons of a tv show with uh great help from an an incredible staff of writers and uh, other collaborators uh but i still feel like i don't know what i'm doing you know and and i've kind of um freed myself of the expectation that i ever will um okay i you know i think we're all just kind of fumbling around in the dark and and putting piles of mud uh, on top of other piles of mud and then gradually uh, refining it to, to uh, look like something. Is freeing yourself of the expectations, is that a skill? Is that something you need to practice? Yeah, I, I think it is. And I, I think it only comes with the experience of okay. making something that you are proud of and realizing you have no idea how you made it. Uh, and that you cannot replicate it, and yet somehow you do. You know, mm. I, I feel very lucky that I, I think my experience on BoJack was a very positive one for me, mm-hmm. and it it didn't fill me with any sort of confidence, <laughs> other than knowing that I will never get that sort of confidence, and that itself is a kind of confidence. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, like every every season of BoJack, I I, I remember. I, um, this last season, uh, was very difficult for me and, and just the, the, the breaking of the season I had a real challenge with, and I, you know, I, I wasn't sure how we were going to do it. And I, I went into my friend Lisa's office and Lisa is is the, um, is, is a producer on the show and and the designer, she does all the, the art for the show. The whole look of the show is is from her and, and we have offices right next to each other, uh, when we are not, uh, sheltered in place. That is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I went into her office and I lied down on the couch and I said, Lisa, I, I don't think I can do it this year. I, I don't <laughs> I don't remember how to do it. I 
I've never, it's never felt this hopeless to me. I think wow. this season is, is going to be a disaster. Uh, and I, I don't know what to do. And Lisa looked at me and she said, you come into my office at the beginning of every season and you give me this exact same monologue. <laughs> and I had no memory <laughs> of doing that. Oh, funny. Uh, but I think it's, you know, I, I, I found that in some ways encouraging. Sure. Um, it, in other ways, kind of terrifying. But <laughs> in some ways, <laughs> on, on my more optimistic days, I, I tend to look at that as a funny story. Right. Um, about how giving birth, perhaps we forget how hard it is. Oh, sure. Uh, yes. When we decide we want to do it again. Very similar. Yes. I, totally. As I understand it, I've also never given birth, and I don't imagine <laughs> I ever will. Um, but I also don't imagine I will ever write another episode of television. So who knows? I've been right. surprised before. Right. So how do I write good? That phrase you used, which I yeah. think is so brilliant. That really is just a part of the writing process, probably early in the part of every, every writing process, even six seasons into a show, or maybe especially six seasons into a show. Yeah. And I think the best answer is stop asking that question and just start writing. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's so interesting to hear that you really struggled with the with the last season, because, of course, I want to ask about Bojack and and like, I don't know, there's this thing with film, TV and theater with anything with any art, I suppose, where there's almost like a post project hangover or like a post show blues. And that must be especially true for a years long process like Bojack. So, like, I'd love to hear about the experience of of creating specifically the final season and then. The process of letting go and saying goodbye, was was it as emotional for you? Let's as... talk about that first. I think that's actually a little more interesting, mm -hmm. and I haven't talked about that as much. I would say, I mean, there's certainly a, a, a bittersweetness to it, but I, I think it's the, the blues have not been as heavy as I expected them to be. Mm -hmm. I think I had an expectation that once this was all over, it would, it would really hit me pretty hard. And I, I think because it was such a long process to end it, you know, like we, we were working on this last season for like a, about a year and a half, I think, from, from when we first started writing it to when, when the final episodes dropped. I had so much time within that to go through all the stages of grief from ah. denial and bargaining and anger and sadness and acceptance. <laughs> uh, and, and, and making the season was so difficult you know, by the end, I, I mostly just felt and still feel relief. I feel like we did it. We, we pulled yeah. it off. And I think, you know, when when you are making a show, um, especially a, a years long show, but I think this is true of anything, any any movie, any play, any artistic thing that you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, but but I guess even more so a TV show that you're you're putting out as you're making it. There is always this like sense of like you are building an airplane as you are taking off and flying it in the air. And then, you know, at a certain point you think, oh, did, have I put landing gear on this plane? Do I know how to land this thing? I have to I have to build this as we are now landing. I have to I have to create the, the landing strip and, and, and uh, you know, mm -hmm. screw on the wheels onto this thing. Um, and, and so there is a stress of like, can I pull this off? Can't can we do this without crashing into the side of a mountain? Uh, and so, 
you know, feeling ultimately like, yes, we landed the plane and now mm-hmm. I have this show and it is a complete thing uh, that that feels good. And I, I take a lot of pride in that. And that, you know, on some days I miss the process and I miss the, the people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't miss the, the stress of, of the responsibility of, of feeling like, oh, this especially on a show that that uh, I feel very lucky that people have responded to in a really positive, powerful way. Sure. I, I think that comes with a, with a great deal of responsibility and, and feeling of like, well, we can't let those people down. Right. And, and then I always mm. felt every season, I felt like, well, this is the season that everyone's <laughs> going to hate. Like it's, we've gone, we've gone too far with people still liking the show. Now yeah, people yeah. are going to realize that, that we let them down. And I feel like that didn't really happen broadly. I mean, certainly there are people who prefer some seasons over other seasons, but mm-hmm. I, I think broadly it feels like, no, the people who liked the show liked it all the way through. And, and we had a, we have a, a nice little package now that is the show. And yeah. so I think the relief that we like got away with it kind of um, out, outpaces any lingering <laughs> sadness or, or, or longing. Gotcha. Um, and especially yeah. now that we're, we're dealing with this whole new universe, uh, there's a, yeah. a little bit of relief that we ended before having to deal with with all of this and trying to figure yeah. out, does this is this a part of the show now or how do we deal with this? How do we work through this? There's a cleanness to, to not having to. Although True. I do regret that I do not have the opportunity now to continue giving jobs to a lot of people that I'm sure would love to be working. So that's a mixed bag. But, but otherwise, yeah. I, I generally feel very positive about ending the show when and how we did. Yes, the timing was good. And I mean, speaking personally as a fan, I hear where you're coming from with the responsibility that you feel because I had very high expectations for your final season <laughs> for how you guys were going to stick the landing, frankly, and and you still exceeded those expectations. Oh, thank you. That's, that's very nice of you to say. It's probably, I mean, it's no longer on the air. So I, I've always said it's my, it's I've said for years, it's my favorite show on the air. And well, it's, it's uh, still, look, I don't know how Netflix, how you count Netflix shows because it's, <laughs> true. it's still, people are still discovering it for the first time. Yes. And people are still watching it and, you know, I, I would encourage you and anyone else when asked what your favorite currently airing TV shows are to mention Bojack. <laughs> I can still you, say that. You can definitely yeah. still say that. I'm, you know, I think as, as long as we are still um, eligible uh, for awards and year-end oh, yeah. lists, I think we still count as a TV show. Yes, totally, totally. Yeah, and we're, we're, we really are in the age of streaming content when on the air means a completely different thing. And Right. I think BoJack is pretty great quarantine viewing, so. I would say so. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Um, I would love to ask, too, I mean, one more question about BoJack before. I want to ask sure. you about Undone as well. Okay, but great. What, what was the initial inspiration for BoJack, and how has it changed? Especially how has it changed? Because for all TV shows, the initial seed and the finale are, are pretty different things. But I imagine, was this intended to be first and foremost or more so a hollywood satire at the beginning versus what instead versus well i would characterize it again speaking as a fan but characterizing it as much more of a like deep dive character study with five or more really really fleshed out people that yes there are cartoons but to me they feel like people in my life (laughs) thank you yeah i mean i think it was always meant to be both 
Um, okay. And I, I think we're very lucky that we got six seasons that we had the opportunity to continue to go deeper with all these characters every season. Gotcha. Um, and to really un- unpack who these people are and how they, they work in the world. But I, I remember the, the pitch, you know, when I, when I brought it into to Netflix back in, mm-hmm. uh, I guess it was like right around um, Thanksgiving 2013, um, when they, you know, they, I, I said, you know, I, I want this to be a show that when it starts, people think that it's like a typical animated sitcom. And by the end of the first season, it's become more of like a serialized dramedy um, yes. along the lines of like a girls or even a madman. Um, yes. So, you know, so, so the goal with the first season was to trick people, <laughs> which okay, I've, cool. since, I've since kind of gone back and forth of whether or not that's a, a good goal for a TV <laughs> show to have. Um, but, but that was the idea was, yes, I, I want this show to be deeper than people give it credit for at first. I want it, I right. want it to sneak up on people and surprise people. So by the end of the season, you're going, wait, I actually feel for these characters. How, how did that happen? Um, you know, and I wanted to, I wanted to go slow, like boiling a frog, but before yeah. you know it, you're invested. Um, <laughs> and I, I think part of that was I, you know, I enjoyed the game of it. And then also part of it was I, I wasn't sure because it was a, an animated show, if people would take these characters seriously or if we had to trick them. Like, I, I still wonder, you know, if we had come out in the first episode, if it had been as heavy and emotional as the show ended up getting, if people would have been into that right away or if, or if mm-hmm. they needed that adjustment period. Um, and I'm, I'm not quite sure about, about the answer to that question, honestly. Mm. Um, and I think one thing that that uh, Bojack has done, at least for me, and the way I see it, as far as how my work is um, viewed, is I, I think it has given sh- animated shows that come after Bojack uh, more room to mm. not be funny and goofy at first. And so certainly, you know, when we made Undone, you know, we were banking on the expectation that people wouldn't write off an animated show as just being goofy right away. And we didn't have to teach that lesson again, that we could start it from more of a dramedy place and and know that there was an audience for that because of the work that I felt I had done on BoJack to, to, to bridge that divide. Very cool. Very cool. So yeah, that um, quick, I mean, about undone, could you explain for maybe listeners who don't know the style of animation and how the filming of that works? Sure. So uh, Undone is a, a show that I, I co-created with Kate Purdy, who is a, uh, a longtime BoJack writer, uh, and it's on Amazon. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a dramedy uh, about a, a young woman who um, gets in a car accident, and when she wakes up from her coma, um, she, she discovers that, that her uh, perception of time has been altered, I guess, is, is the best way to describe a very difficult to describe TV show. Totally. Um, yes. And that now her father, who, who died, uh, you know, over a dozen years earlier, is appearing before her and, and telling her that because she has come close to death, she has now uh, transcended some sort of barrier and she can learn and develop skills to control time. Um, and he's going to train her so that she might be able to go back in time and stop him from being mm-hmm. murdered. And, and the tension of the first season, at least, is she doesn't know 
if she has actually gained these powers and discovered this new way of viewing the universe, a la The Matrix, uh, or if she is just losing her mind, a la mm -hmm. A Beautiful Mind. Um, and that tension is, is kind of the, what the show is about. Uh, but the, the way it is made um, is rotoscoped animation, um, which is if people are familiar with uh, Waking Life or A Scanner Darkly uh, or a series of E-Trade commercials that came out a few years ago, uh, basically, we shoot the actors, um, in, you know, doing a scene, uh, and then these incredible artists and animators, um, I, tracing is not quite the right word, mm. um, but they, they go over every frame of, of the show and they, they draw the, the characters based on our actors' performances. Um, so when you're watching it, it has this very eerie effect of feeling very lifelike, but also in some ways cartoony. And it, yeah. it, it I think as far as uh, the content of the show, I think the form complements it in a really interesting way that, that mm -hmm. you, like our protagonist Alma, feel like you're kind of between worlds and you don't know what is real and what is not real. Mm. Totally. So that is from the, you're saying the actors provide a lot of the kind of original the, the, the material of where of what it looks like and what it sounds like and what it feels like because they're filmed as a just bare bones, just the actors at first. Yeah. So we do it like, um, or I should say we did season one, uh, you know, be, because the, the technology is constantly changing in really exciting ways. And so even now uh -huh. we're talking about doing season two in slightly different ways. Uh, but in cool. season one, we, we shot it, you know, almost like, um, like you're at like an acting conservatory and you're just doing a scene for your classmates, like very bare bones. Like these two blocks are a bench uh, and you're holding a steering wheel and it's a car. Uh, and then all that is drawn around the performances. And so it really meant the actors could really just focus on the other actors and their performances and, and the way they acted with them. And there wasn't a lot of, you know, hair and makeup. There was a little bit, but there wasn't a lot of lighting mm -hmm. setups. Like it was, it was a very quick, a lot of turnarounds, um, in very fast. It was all done in, in, you know, one studio space, just boom, 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 boom. Mm. Not a lot of location moves. Um, and you could really kind of focus on the content of the scene. And so I think mm -hmm. it was really fun for them. And it was really cool for us that we got these, uh, incredible actors. Um, and then I think for the animators, it's, it's a really fun challenge too, because there are a lot of choices made about which, you know, which lines on the face need to be drawn and how do you suggest this smile, uh, mm. you know, without drawing every single wrinkle um, and you can catch all these little details. So like our animators now, like they know our actors faces better than their own spouses, probably <laughs> like like they, wow, you know, they can yeah. tell you when Rosa Salazar is about to start smiling because they know exactly how her <laughs> eye twitches. Uh, like the, wow. it's really fascinating. Yeah. Wow. And you see it in the show, like you see this incredible detail and in some ways it, it looks more real than if we just shot it with cameras. Like there's, there's almost mm -hmm. because the artists are choosing which details to highlight it. Right. It's really powerful. It's really interesting. It is stunning. And it's, it's such an exercise in like, I want to ask you, what do you learn from actors? This is true of, I guess I, I could ask this about Undone and Bojack. Like, do they ever influence your writing? But also, have you grown as an artist or as a thinker because of working with actors? Oh, definitely. 
I mean, I think the, the biggest thing I have learned is to trust actors more. And then I think when, you know, when you're first starting as a, a writer or a director, I think there's an impulse to feel like you, you see something in your head and you want it to be just like that. And you want to use mm. your actors as like little Lego pieces that you can kind of move around in your make-believe world. And gotcha. that I think, you know, first of all, actors don't like that because they, they want to feel like they are adding something to the process. Um, but also, I, I think your work becomes better the more people you allow to collaborate with you. And, and so, I mean, that's true mm-hmm. on every step of the process. And I've, I've been so lucky to have such talented collaborators. You know, I, I think BoJack would not be the show it, it, it was if not for the incredible writers that I worked with. But that's also true of the animators and the character designers and all of the actors. And that, mm-hmm. you know, once you stop hearing, you know, the, the one specific line read in your head and you allow actors to, to come in with their own interpretation, sometimes you can be surprised and delighted by what they pull out of the script and what they add to it. Yeah. And there are, there are lines in BoJack that I remember thinking, well, this is a placeholder. And then hearing at the table read, you know, Will Arnett or one of our other actors just knock find new corners of mm. that line and you go, Oh no, that's perfect. Like this, this is, this is really Amazing. cool. What this actor is doing with this line. Um, and I think that wouldn't be possible if you had too strict of an idea of how every scene was supposed to go. So I, I, I think that's, that's the, that's the main thing I've learned from actors is that <laughs> it sounds so basic that actors are talented and <laughs> they are smart <laughs> Um, if, if you, if you allow them to be, and, and I think, right. you know, it's important to, to figure out what they're good at and, and write towards that, um, yeah. and, and give them room to find things and give them room to surprise you, mm-hmm. um, and build the time in and, you know, a, a, allow that to happen. I love that idea that it's, it's not a rewrite of, it's not like they're re writing a line of yours, but they are reading it in a way that you didn't expect. Even just placing an emphasis on a different word, it expands your mind, right? About like where yeah. the character could go even. Yes. Yes. And I've, I've found, you know, and so I, I'm not, I'm not saying actors should throw the script out and just improvise. I'm saying, you know, good actors <laughs> can find different corners of written lines. And, and yeah. you, you know, you take two good actors and put them in a scene and, and they can do the scene five different ways without changing a word of dialogue, if, if they're good. <laughs> right. Totally, totally. Well, and I know you've been asked a lot about writing advice, but I would actually like to, we are, we are backstage, so we do mm-hmm. have an emphasis, emphasis on all parts of the biz, but mostly acting, early career actors. Do you have advice for someone who's starting out in acting, maybe especially who wants to get involved in voiceover? Yes. I mean, I, I would say the biggest piece of advice I can give is train yourself to come up with different good interpretations of the line and the scene that, that you're not, you know, you're not trying to hone in on a specific target necessarily. I think for some projects you are, there's a very specific thing you want to hit. Uh, but I think you want to allow yourself to be flexible. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is just, you know, honing your, your, your instincts and, and your, um, your ability to be flexible on the day. So that even if you have an idea of what the scene means, if the director comes in and says it's actually about this, that you can very quickly pivot and give mm-hmm. that performance. But I think also part of it is, is preparation and looking at the script beforehand and thinking, 
okay, my, my initial instinct is that it should go like this. And what is, what is the best version of my first instinct? But also, let's take a step back and think, are there other ways this scene could play? Are there different lines that you know, could have that emphasis or different words in this oh. sentence? And I think the more variety and the more options you can bring your collaborators, the, the, the more an asset you are to have on set or in the recording booth. And then I think it's, it's very frustrating when an actor comes in and they have decided this is how this line should be said, either mm-hmm. um, you know, consciously or subconsciously. And, right. and even as you try to massage them in certain directions or give them notes, they, they can't go more than five centimeters off of, of their yeah. read of the line. And, and I think there's also, you know, sometimes a danger in the other thing of just thoughtlessly throwing out random emphases on different words that no human <laughs> would ever say, which is not always helpful, but sometimes that can be helpful to find things that work. And, and there have been actors who come in who give me some real wild takes but then through that, they find they land on something really interesting that we never would have found um, otherwise. So I, I think first of all, yes, you ha- you have to think about different ways to attack a scene, um, and then also you have to you know leave your ego at the door and trust that I or the director, or the editor wants you to look good. So we're not going to let you look stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like if you give us something that is totally messy and it doesn't work for the scene, we're, we're going to cut it out. You don't have to worry about that. Gotcha. Uh, if we think your messy take is the best for the scene, we'll put it <laughs> in and trust us. Right. It goes back to that thing of it's not going to be perfect. Just put it out there and see what works. Yes. And I, but I think also part of that is, is doing the work beforehand. And I, I yes. think there is, um, I think there is a feeling with some actors that maybe even in vo- particularly in voiceover, because you don't have to memorize anything. You're just coming in and the script is right there. To, you right. don't even have to look at the script beforehand. And I think the, the more successful actors, uh, at least especially for ones who are just starting out, because I, I think there are actors who are so uh, experienced that they can just come in and read it cold and give you five different reads. Boom, 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 mm-hmm. boom. But I think if, if you are start just starting out and you're, you're trying to, uh, you know, show that you are a cut above perhaps other people who are just starting out, I think preparation and coming in flexible and, you know, and knowing that you might throw out all your preparation immediately, but yeah. having thought about the character and the lines beforehand, I think is going to pay dividends on, on your time in the booth or on set. Yeah. It's funny because we we obviously ask a lot about audition advice on this podcast, and that what you just said echoes echoes the advice for for auditions of over prepare, and yeah. when you are in the room, it is super key to then kind of drop everything and just really have the ability to be flexible. And exactly. I didn't realize that it's that's just true of the voiceover booth audition, or if it's yeah, if it's I think the, well, I think that tracks to everything. I mean, that's true of writing also, mm-hmm. or like pitching a show. Is that like? You know, I had ideas going into season one. I was like, this is what the show is. And then when I realized those ideas weren't panning out, I had to pivot and and come up with other stuff. So I absolutely think, yeah, over-prepare and then be flexible is like the best advice for anybody working in this business. Cool. Um, In any medium, yeah, including writing. any, Any medium, any discipline. Yeah, amazing. Are there also, maybe on the flip side of that, are there misconceptions for someone who's starting out in the industry, acting, writing, anything, anything in the arts, is there something that you find 
people believe that is wrong <laughs> that you wish more people knew? That's a good question. Uh, I've given my good advice, and I, I guess my <laughs> my uh, my misconception I would want to uh, get rid of is people thinking they don't have to do my good advice. Uh -huh. <laughs> all the all the stuff I just said. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think I think yeah. The, the misconception as far as acting goes that I that I I, 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 I kind of ran into over and over again was the 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 feeling that I was looking for a correct take. Like there was a target that I was mm -hmm. trying to hit and that, you know, every adjustment that I wanted was towards that one goal. And so I would always tell actors coming in that we're looking for variety. We want to have options in the editing booth. You know, give us as many good takes as you can that are all wildly different from each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because I might feel like this is the correct thing right now, but then when looking at my options and looking at like the other actor's performance, I might feel like, oh, I want something bigger here or I want something smaller here. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think the feeling, and I understand the instinct of like I'm I'm trying to to go towards the target. I'm trying to get the exact right thing, and then we'll move on. I think is not always helpful. And, and the truth is like, I want something like this and I want something like that. And I want something like this and I want something like that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the more options you can give the editors, um, the, the better position they'll be in. That's great advice. Okay, amazing. We have all these silly backstage -y questions that I would love to ask you slightly tailored. I mean, usually we're asking these of actors, but mm -hmm. do you, you must have a SAG card. Do you remember how I you got your SAG, SAG card? I do have a SAG card, yes. Um, I was on an episode of Children's Hospital, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, I, I got that because, um, John Stern, who was a producer on Children's Hospital, I had met with to develop, uh, I, I, I worked on a different project with like a, a pilot presentation uh, for Sony that, that ended up going nowhere. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think, um, Rob Corddry, uh, when they were casting the show, they really wanted to fill up the show with funny people. Uh, and so even though it was just one line, I think John Stern <laughs> was kind of like looking through his Rolodex, like, this is a funny guy. Let's, let's bring him in. Um, and I, I'd done sketch comedy. And so I was a little bit of a, of a performer, but, but not really, you know, once I moved to LA, I kind of, saw myself as being on the the writing track mm -hmm. um so i was really delighted to get this call to to come do one line on on this show and it was uh terrifying for me and it was sure. it was my 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 first day on like a real set and i felt totally lost and i you know i made the the exact uh m mistake that i just warned against that i you know i had one line yeah. and i kind of decided what my character was going to be and how i was going to do it and I get right. on set and the director goes, so I think your character is kind of like this and like something totally different. And so I had to very quickly just drop everything I had rehearsed and said, OK, yeah. I guess I'm this guy now. That's great. That's great. And was that like, oh, I have a newfound appreciation for on camera actors? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I mean, with it, one I, line. Yeah. It might have been two lines or, or something, but it was it was uh -huh. very. Um, and then, yeah, because there's so much other stuff you don't think about, right? Is that like mm -hmm. when you get the script and you're like practicing in your apartment, you're like, okay, I get this, I get this. But then when you get there and the camera's there and the lights are there <laughs> and everybody's looking at you, like, 
it is a whole different thing. And there's no yeah. way to practice for that other than doing it. And so I think right. the first time it is like terrifying. It's like, oh, this is a totally this is a a a, a, a brand new thing. And I've seen it happen. Um, you know, because we we've we've brought in um non-actors for Bojack and Undone sometimes if we want like a cameo or someone come in. And mm-hmm. and it's you see people who are very um uh, well put together and, and, you know, our, our public figures even who know how to talk and know how to put words together. And as soon as you like put a microphone in front of them, you, you get very flustered and, and you forget yeah. how to say a sentence like a real person. Uh, totally. <laughs> um, and, totally. And, and it's, it's very overwhelming. Yeah. You got to talk like a human on Bojack Horseman. You got to talk like a regular human, even if you're playing a horse or a cat. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, okay. What is one performance that every actor should see and why? Ooh, that's a, that is a great question. <laughs> Film, what TV, theater, anything. Comedy. One performance. Oh, I, I should have prepared an answer to this because I feel I know as soon as know, we hang up, I'm like, oh, I should have said this. I should have said that. Um, I'm, I'm drawing such a blank right now. You really put me on the spot. I know. This one always throws people for a loop and we could totally come back to it. I mean, I mean, I'll say the, the first thing that comes to mind is, is maybe this is a, a cheat. Um, but I, I'll say Will Arnett and Bojack Horseman. Yes. Uh, particularly the, the episode Free Churro, um, which is just one monologue. It's actually two monologues that, that Will gives over oh, the course uh-huh. of the whole episode. I think if you are a voice actor, mm. I think it is really instructive to listen to what he does and how he modifies and modulates his voice. Um, mm. And I, I think he's such a pro when it comes to hitting jokes and, and finding mm. the comedy in lines, but he's also an incredibly emotive, emotional actor. Um, and he gives a very precise technical performance in that episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think it, if you are interested in voice acting, I think it is a performance worth studying. Amazing. Uh, actually, going off of that, like if you're a voiceover actor looking to study voice, like great voice acting, how, how exactly should you do that? Is it, is it like listening to that episode rather than watching the visuals? Maybe? Yeah, I actually think that's that's really helpful is if you, you close your eyes and you listen to what's happening. And actually, you know, when we make the show, we um, we do a radio play first before any of it is drawn right. or storyboarded or animated. We edit the whole thing together, just the voices, and we listen to it. And the, the goal is, does it work as a radio play? Because if it doesn't work as a radio play, you know, no amount of animation is going to save it. Mm, okay. And so it's, it's, and then, you know, of course the animation adds so much to it. Um, but I, I think it's, it's important yeah, think about how you communicate stuff with just your voice, without the benefit of physicality. And I think it's worth thinking about, like, what are certain physical cues that you don't have, and how do you do that with your voice? Like, how do you give something air quotes with your voice, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How do you wink at somebody with your voice? Um, how do you uh, leer at somebody? How, 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 do you, how do you play uh, different lines in different ways, you know, and think about what, what are the counterintuitive ways to read this line? Mm-hmm. And can you discover some interesting friction there? You know, can you play against what the text of the line is saying and find another element to it? Um, you know, that's something I'm, oh. I'm really fond of, of, of asking actors to do too, is that, you know, trust the line 
to communicate what it communicated to you when you just read it and then think, is there something else I can add to it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, sometimes it's enough to just you know, play what the line is, is saying. Mm-hmm. It's, it's distracting if you try to <laughs> throw too many curveballs on top of it. Yeah. But sometimes it can be interesting to go, okay, well, this is a very sad line and it reads as very sad. So what if instead of playing it as very sad, I tried to lighten it or tried to be funny mm-hmm. with it? Would that help the sadness come through even more? Yeah, um, so I think just if you to can see find, what that does. To see what it does. I think find those ironies. Um, mm. and, but I, I definitely think listening rather than watching is, is really helpful. And I think um, even with live action stuff too, closing your eyes or you know, listening to a scene and then looking at the scene and thinking, what did I get from just the voice? And was it everything? Mm. Um, and if not, how, how would I have improved this voice to give us what the actor's giving with their physicality. My gosh, that's terrific advice for voiceover actors. <laughs> Thank you. I also feel like just with these days, just uh, post-quarantine life, voiceover acting is very much a thing right now. It's very much something that a lot of people starting at the very, very beginning of, of the process of becoming a voice talent, like, I think a lot of people might be doing that right now. I know a lot of home studios are being built as yeah. we speak. Well, I, I think animation is a thing that that seems to be maybe the least disrupted, uh, yeah. although albeit still very disrupted of, yeah, of all yeah. the, the things that are being made right now. Um, so I certainly think, yes, you're, you're going to see more and more actors get into it in the immediate future. But also I, I think generally before this, I feel like animation was having a really good time. I feel like there are exciting Absolutely. things happening in animation. There are new kinds of stories happening in animation that haven't been told before. And so mm-hmm. I think a lot of actors it would behoove them to have that skill set in their tool belt. Definitely. Even if they think of themselves as primarily live action actors. Or dramatic actors. Yeah. 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 Because like you were saying about sort of tricking audiences with BoJack, like I think more and more these days it's accepted that animation is not, it's not necessarily all Bugs Bunny. It's not all silliness. It's, there's a capacity for real dramatic pathos, even if there are animated animals involved. I would say I think another good skill set for any any actor is I would say practice with like bad copy and ask yourself, how do I make this good? Because I I think there is a frustrating instinct I see sometimes with actors where they're having they have trouble with the line and their instinct is like, we have to change this line. We have to we have to you know, this Mm. this isn't funny. This isn't good. This isn't working. I have to say something different. Whereas I, I, I think the better actors have trouble with something and they ask, like, what is happening here? What am I not understanding? Mm. Or, or they think about what can I do with this to make this work for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where really interesting discoveries are made. Right. Um, I think a lot of times, like a lot of thought has gone into that script that you are so blithely dismissing, if I can say in yeah. defense of writers. And not always. Sometimes <laughs> it was, you know, three o'clock in the morning, we just had to get something down. Um, but a lot of times, you know, that line that you might want to change might be a load-bearing line for something that happens later in the story. Sure. Um, and so I, I think it is... Or, you know, you might just not be allowed to change something. And so I think it is a really good totally. skill. Because I, I, I don't think a good instinct is then, okay, well, I'll just, I guess I'm just going to say this bad line and they'll see how bad it is. Um, I don't think that's helpful. That's I think realistic. That, well, or then you just get a bad performance and then you're in the scene acting badly. Sure. <laughs> um, 
you know, or or they change it to a less interesting line that is maybe easier for you, uh, right. which I don't think should be your goal as an actor. I think okay. if you can see this line as a challenge and go, okay, I'm not getting this. Maybe it is bad, but what life can I bring to it? Or is there a way for me to make this good? I think that's mm. a really interesting challenge and really helpful. Because there, there have been times where I have written jokes because it was three o'clock in the morning. I go, I don't, I, we just have to have something in this scene. And then mm. we do the table read and then like, you know, Paul F. Tompkins knocks it out of the park and you go, Oh, good. We're in good hands. He saved mm. this. And this could have been really bad under a less talented actor, but the good actor made it work. Um, so I, I don't believe there is any line bad enough that a good actor can't save. So I, I would, Amazing. if your instinct is this line needs to be changed, I would, I would put the challenge back on you yeah. and think, how can I save this line? How, how can I make this feel natural or funny uh, without, you know, shitting on the scene or or dist distracting from what the point of the scene is right that's and sometimes gold. that you can ask you can say you know i yep. am having trouble with this help me understand what this line is supposed to be doing uh, if you come at it you know with a from a place of respect the, mm -hmm. the 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 writer is or director will be happy to talk you through it or maybe even change the line if they agree with you that it's not sounding natural um mm -hmm. but i think if you come at it from a place of disrespect and a and a, um it's not going to end well for anybody. No. Sure. That, yeah, I love that. Um, that's pure gold. The idea that there's no, there's no line bad enough. It's if the actor can see it as a challenge, then what a great opportunity to grow as an actor. Exactly. Oh my gosh. And, I, and, and to be fair, I will say to, <laughs> to writers listening that you should be egoless about your own work. And yeah. if you see an actor struggling with your, with your line, uh, whether they are being gracious or not, uh, it does mm. not behoove you to punish them by making them say it. And then you have a bad performance on your show. Right. Um, you know, it, it is it is important for you to be gracious with them and try to help them either by trying to explain what what you are going for or allowing them to riff around if you think that would be helpful. Um, sure. But I, I think, you know, on both sides, we can kind of dig our heels in and, and that is not helpful. It's It's a collaboration. It should be a collaboration. Gotcha. Yeah, that's excellent. That's so excellent. Um, okay, last question. What is your number one piece of advice for your younger self? If you could go back in time, something you wish you'd known? Don't worry so much. Okay. <laughs> yes. That's great advice. Yes. I mean, that's, that's advice that I think me of 10 years from now could probably tell myself now, too. Um, oh, sure. I mean, I guess a little bit of worrying is good, but not so much. I, I wouldn't say don't worry at all. <laughs> I'd say worry a healthy amount. Ah, worry okay. as far okay. as it's productive, but then, you know, maybe, um, you know, keep normal business hours for your worrying. Try not to worry oh when, you, when you don't need to be worrying. <laughs> Wait, I love that. Because so often, like, don't worry about it implies, like, what, a complete lack of worry? That's not a thing. <laughs> yeah. You have to have the right amount. Yeah, I think, well, I think there are people who worry more than is helpful, and then there are people who worry... Yeah not enough and i think unfortunately <laughs> we're all bad at figuring out what kind of people we are and i think yeah. unfortunately if you are the kind of person who thinks that you are worrying too much you might not be worrying enough and if you're the kind of person who thinks you're not worrying enough you're probably the person who's worrying too much yes um so that's advice i would give to me specifically is that i probably didn't need to worry quite so much 
Um, but that's not necessarily uh, one size fits all advice for everybody. See your see your physician. Ask your doctor if worrying <laughs> is right for you. Yes. Yes. Get the right prescription for the right amount of worry, for sure. And I also I do think that the success of Bojack, I think, in some ways comes from not necessarily worrying, but paying attention to detail. And I think mm. there, there's definitely there's definitely a lot of detail on Bojack that I wouldn't want to dissuade myself from caring about. I think I think sweating the small stuff mm. is good sometimes but it doesn't mm-hmm. always mean work but but also you know it's like that the thing that the um the alcoholics say right about about knowing the difference between what you have control over and what you don't yes. have control over i think that is a, a very important skill interesting like don't sweat the small stuff and some of it is small stuff rather than and it's all small stuff yeah i i but i also think <laughs> One way in which I was very lucky, and I would encourage other people to seek this out if they can, is to, is to find collaborators who you trust. So you don't have to sweat all the small stuff yourself. Mm. But I, I think the, the success of, of all of my shows, I would say, comes from uh, empowering people to add their own little bit of magic to the sauce, because it's not something that I could have done all myself. Um, sure. And so I think you, you need to find people that you trust and then actually trust them Mm. and then know that you don't have to worry about everything because you have other people worrying about this specific thing or that specific thing or this specific thing right gosh that's excellent advice Raphael. thank you (laughs) thank you i i this was such a pleasure yeah thank you so much for joining us from from your quote-unquote home studio (laughs) my pleasure appreciate it (laughs) have a good one you too take care Envelope is recorded at Lotus Productions and Hyperbolic Audio in New York City and Soundbox LA, Mark Grau Studios, and Buzzies in Los Angeles. Thanks as always to our producer extraordinaire, Jamie Muffet, and to the team at Backstage, Samantha Sherlock, Mark Stinson, Caitlin Watkins, and of course, Casey Howe. Visit Backstage.com and don't forget, you can subscribe to Backstage by using the code ENVELOPE at checkout for a free trial. That's right, 100% free. For more exclusive content, join us on Facebook and Twitter at In The Envelope and subscribe, share, and leave a comment. Who would you like us to interview next? Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another glimpse in the envelope.